Off the ball. You two lads are from Leinster, so it's no wonder you're given out of the provincial championship. I don't want to take away the provinces. Who drew the geographical lines back in the day? It's because of the way that the provinces are broken up. Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. You're welcome back. So we're going to turn to football. Very to say, Matt Slater from the Athletic, always a welcome guest, is on the line. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. How's the off season treating you? Uh, I don't really have an off season. Uh, yeah, well, because it's straight into other stuff. I don't really cover games, so you know, I don't have an off season. The business of football never sleeps. That's for sure. Indeed. That's right. So uh, you, like uh, lots of people in your uh, recent piece in The Athletic, couldn't help but notice that Chelsea seemed to be selling quite a few players to the Saudi Pro League, or certainly lots of their players have been linked to the Pro League. Ingolo Kante, what a player he was, by the way, uh, sadly mm-hmm. departs Premier League shores and Koulibaly is the latest to head for the Saudi Pro League. There is speculation around Hakim Ziyech, around Aubameyang, Callum Hudson-Odoi, uh, Mendy, you name it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. people have said, well, what is going on here? And uh, well, you can pick up the story from here. They have drawn the link between Chelsea and their yeah. majority owner, Clear Lake Capital, and the Saudi PIF. And it's yeah. almost almost certain the Saudi PIF has investments in Clear Lake Capital who own Chelsea. So there's a degree here of, well, yeah. you know, we, we, we want Chelsea and Clear Lake and their investment to do well. So let's see if we can all help everybody out. There you go. That's basically it in a nutshell. And that was the that was doing the rounds well, about a week ago, um, maybe maybe sort of ten days ago. And yeah, and the idea was that that public investment fund, which um, has bought Newcastle, no doubt about that, eighty percent of Newcastle, and had very recently, so about two and a half three weeks ago, had just acquired or been given the four best teams in the Saudi Pro League. Um, as part of the Saudi Pro League's privatisation or professionalisation, modernisation, whatever you want to call it, um, was helping another of its investments out, Chelsea. And as you say, um, while everyone talks about Todd Bowley, Todd Bowley is kind of the front man of this sort of large US conglomerate, not conglomerate, syndicate that owns Chelsea. Most of the money comes from a private equity firm called Clear Lake. And they're a very successful private equity firm based in California, been around for, I think, 17 years. The football, this Chelsea investment, is a bit of a departure for them. They've never done anything like it before. They've been very, very successful at buying medium-sized American companies. And they do this in the way that every private equity firm does it. They basically raise money in these funds that have a start date and a finish date, and they have a kind of target amount that we want to raise, and they kind of give some clues as to the type of thing they want to do with this money. And they say, okay, who wants to who wants to invest with us? And we'll borrow more, we'll leverage up, and we'll go buy some companies. We're going to go buy some undervalued companies, and we're going to all make loads and loads of cash. We'll sell them in five years' time, six, seven years' time, and we'll all be happy. And they've been really good at that. And the type of people that invest in Clear Lake and other private equity firms are pension companies, insurance companies, family offices, uh, sovereign wealth funds, uh, big banks, uh, insurance companies. I might have said them already. So large financial institutions and a typical, well, maybe typical is the wrong word. The last couple of Clear Lake investment funds have been big. So the last one was closed last year, 2022, at 14 billion US dollars in it. 
had something like four, no, 300 different investors from 40 different countries. No one can have more than 5%. That's quite important. So no single investor can have more than 5% in a fund. And the average is about 1%. Now, they, they're closing the title, private equity. Uh, they don't really discuss who's in, who's out, right? But pretty much everybody in the industry knows because it's not remotely surprising because sovereign wealth funds do this and the Norwegian sovereign wealth funds probably in there and the Singapore one and the, and so on and so on. And, you know, maybe some of your pensions in there too. Um, well, I've almost certainly invested in Clear Lake funds. PIF have almost certainly invested because, like I say, Clear Lake have been doing well and PIF are everywhere now. PIF have, for the last five, six, seven years, ever since Mohammed bin Salman has been in charge in Saudi Arabia and there's been this huge push around diversifying the Saudi economy, using sport to do that. PIF has just gone, go, 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 go sprinkle our fossil fuel wealth everywhere. Well, on that point, sorry, brief interruption, because um, you made that point somewhere in the midst of your article. I hadn't fully uh, realised that. So Saudi Arabia... Uh, from memory, discover oil in 1938, and then you say in your piece, uh, the PIF starts in 1971 when they realise we have lots of money to invest on the basis yep. of this discovery. I hadn't fully appreciated. It's only as of 2014 that the PIF was given permission to invest in overseas firms. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. people are th- saying, why is it now all of a sudden like I can't cross the road without Saudi Arabia hitting me in the face? It's only it, well, it, we're yeah, just yeah. we're we're a decade into them being allowed to invest in overseas yeah. firms. Yeah, they've been oh, here's a surprise. They've been very conservative with their money. So PIF, as sovereign wealth funds go, have been really boring. Um it wasn't very big. Yeah. Um, there are other wealth funds in Saudi Arabia. That one in particular basically used some of the oil money to invest in purely Saudi projects. And again, this idea around diversifying the Saudi economy. So trying to get some, you know, a bit of a one-trick pony, Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's an amazing pony, but uh, it's it's not the most broad-brush, sophisticated modern economy and that's very much the, you know the, the story in the, in the entire region and very much the story around MBS about what he wants to do with his vision for the country so PIF's remit changed and now it starts to behave more like Norway's uh, sovereign wealth fund which has something owns a little bit of every major company in the world so um given permission to invest abroad he emerges in about 2017, 2018. He kind of takes full control of PIF. Suddenly, the brightest, the best and brightest in Saudi Arabia are working for PIF. It's given more money. There's a little bit of uh, pinching money from other people, which we don't want to go too much into a story about MBS. But this this PIF fund just grows, grows and grows and grows and grows and becomes Saudi Arabia's one, its pension fund, you know, this great big endowment fund for all the good things that, that, that MBS wants to do for Saudi Arabia. But equally, it becomes like his private bank to deliver his vision. Everything from, you know, metros in Riyadh to a better airport to amazing futuristic tourist cities on the Red Sea to sport, the lot. PIF is now the sort of bank of MBS. And that, yeah, that's that. that is part of the bigger Saudi story. But to go back to the conspiracy theory, you have a fund that is still 
pretty conservative. It's just investing, investing everywhere, sprinkling its money everywhere. Probably investing, almost certainly investing with Clearlake. Like I said, it can be no more than 5% of any single fund and Clearlake have had something like 13, 14 different funds. Um, Clearlake has 60% at Chelsea. So already you can start to see the dilution. And crucially, when Chelsea takeover happened, when Clearlake came to the Premier League and said, hi guys, this is what we want to do. And we're going to be providing 60% of the money. They were vetted internally and externally um, by, by experts um, at the Premier League. Because they were concerned, right? Is there any Saudi money here? Is there a potential conflict of interest with Newcastle United, et cetera, et cetera? So we had a promise made in 2022. No, there's no Saudi money in our in our purchase of Chelsea. We have the sort of general story around private equity and what PIF does and how Clearlate works. And there is no real degree of control here. And then we have the sort of football story, which, as you say, is a lot of surplus players, uh, expensive not many, not many buyers in Europe. I think also one thing that has perhaps been perhaps underreported or un, or not talked about enough is that a lot of those guys that Chelsea made available are Muslim, and they certainly fit the profile of the type of player that Saudi Pro League wants. You know, famous will be comfortable here, will resonate in the region, and I think you know people have sort of put two and two together and you know and come up with blah blah blah. And um, for me, it just seemed like a bit of a knee jerk typical sort of football thing or that lot over there appear to be up to something and then I would marry that with something which I think is really interesting and I have enormous amounts of sympathy with for is a general unease and uncertainty that I think lots of football fans in lots of different countries feel at the moment who really owns our clubs you know we have we've let sovereign wealth funds do it we've let state you know state back clubs we now have multi-club models we have private equity, and I think there's just a sort of loss of control. Where once upon a time, I'm turning the clock back a long way, it was the local boy made good, or it might be a fan-owned club, uh, and you knew, you kind of knew there was a there was a there was a, a relationship, a link. You know, you could sort of say, well, I'm you know I'm a bit like that person. Now you don't even know who the person is, and that I think is why this conspiracy theory came up so quickly. And I think there'll be another one tomorrow and there'll be another one next week. It's just where we're at with our feelings about who owns our clubs. Mm. And so why does two plus two not equal bloody blah in this game? <laughs> well, I just, well, for me, it's just that's not really how PIF operate, how Clear Lake operate. I really don't think PIF are doing this to help Chelsea out to protect their investment in Clear Lake. It just doesn't make sense. I'm not sure they within within um, the sort of capital structure of any of Clear Lake's investments they'd have they'd have that kind of power. What's far more likely, and I'm sorry, this story is as old as the hills, and I can think of loads of different examples of how this has operated forever in sport, particularly football, is personal relationships. So there might be that might have greased the wheels a little bit here. Oh, brilliant! You, you know, Saudi Saudi Pro League. You're you're, you're going on a mad tear, are you? Great. Well, look, we've got half a dozen players um, who who you know here they are, and the fact that Todd Bowley um, not only you know has this relationship with Clearly, Clearly, um, but his he has a property business called Kane International, 
um, that one of the other directors at Chelsea uh, works for too, called Jonathan Goldstein. Last year, independent of Chelsea, independent of Clear Lake, they actually did a, a joint venture with uh, PIF in a luxury hotel brand in the region. So there are personal contacts. So again, one of the reasons the conspiracy theory kind of really blew up was because that Bowley was in Saudi Arabia uh, a couple of weeks ago um, doing Todd Bowley business. Um, but he also managed to sort of stop some pictures with Saudi football officials. So look, I totally understand where it came from. I just don't think it makes business sense. And I also think that if PIF really wanted to help a football team out, they'd help Newcastle out, which is why I think the Ruben Neves story is a potentially better story. You know, he's a more interesting uh, purchased by the Saudi Pro League anyway, in that he is young and very desirable. Uh, other European teams would love to have him, and yet he's chosen to go. If he were, as has been suggested, and no one's no one's owning up to this one at all. In fact, they're denying it. But if he were to be loaned back at a very mate's rate to Newcastle United, well, that would make a lot more sense. That would that well, you know, red flags away we go. Mm. Um, the, the Chelsea link just seems tenuous to me, and I also think it was a little bit. Well, hold on a minute. Uh, we've got this story of half a dozen guys that might go. Here we are. It's like almost eight days, nine days on since I wrote the piece. Um, Kante went, but don't forget Chelsea wanted to keep Kante, and that was a free transfer. Can you know Chelsea d- didn't want to lose him; they just mm. lost him on wages. Um, Kulabali has gone. The others haven't gone yet. Yeah, and yet other clubs who have nothing to do with Piff or Clear Lake. They're going to sell players to the Saudi Pro League as well. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. Chelsea's finances generally, given that they were uh, noting significant losses in advance of Todd Bowley and Clear Lake's arrival, and then subsequent to that spent £600 uh, on dubious quality in many instances, but £600 nonetheless. Are Chelsea in any kind of financial bother? Not so much uh, going bankrupt, I mean, but just financial fair play bother. I mean, it's a really good question, and, and and the honest answer is we don't really know, or I don't know. Um, you're right; we can all sketch out the numbers, and it would it would appear that they have they're, they're right up against it. Don't forget, with financial fair play, it's a rolling three year assessment. Um, if we go back three years ago, they actually were in credit, so they've had two losses. They've got two big losses on their books that would appear to blow the financial fair play allowance. However. As ever with financial fair play, you can take some things off. Okay, so there's a, there's a sort of set idea of good losses. So money you spend on your academy, your women's team, infrastructure. Um, so that there's some deductions to be made there. I think Chelsea will also be able to argue that they uh, had some sort of one-off um, unique losses around the time that they were put up for sale when... Um, you know, the asset was basically frozen and, and, and Abramovich was forced to sell. If you remember, they weren't allowed, they basically lost access to their bank account. They weren't allowed to sell merchandise, um, you know, sort of even even sort of ticketing and hospitality was all massively um, impacted. So I think they might be able to argue, look, um, you know, that those two big losses, certainly one of them is a little bit unfair. I think it'd be definitely true to say though given the amount they spent and the almost certain loss they're going to make in the year we haven't seen the accounts for yet so last season they've got to sell they've got to sell players um they've been clever also with the 
amount of money they spent on players in that they've given them all very long contracts. That's to sort of stretch what they call amortization, how yeah. you account for your spending. So they're while it was a huge spending spree, it will be stretched over five, six years and for people like Mudrik, eight years. So um, they've been quite cute. Uh, that loophole is, I think, going to be is now going to be closed. But, you know, well done them. They spotted it. Um, there are some risks, of course. They've got mm-hmm. to pay these guys those contracts for a long, long time. So I, I think the honest answer is we don't really know, uh, but they almost certainly have to sell players. But, hey, look, they're doing it. You know, and this is the other thing that, about this sort of Saudi story. That will help. It will certainly, I don't think they're going to get big money. I think nearly all of them will be book losses. They'll certainly help get the wages off the books. But I would look to things like getting Jorginho sold, Kovicevic sold, uh, Kovicic, sorry, sorry, um, Havertz. You know, that, that's, that, that's, those, are, those are decent wedges of cash yeah. to, to Premier League teams. So, you know, I think there's going to be a bit of an overhaul there, but I suspect they're going to be okay because they, they've always said, we're aware of the FFP issue and we're going to be okay. Very curious your thoughts on the Saudi Pro League. <laughs> the first thought I suspect many of us had given it in a very long time, if not ever, was when Ronaldo pitched up there and then was Messi going to go? In the end, he didn't. And now I just uh, put Saudi Pro League into Google News and it's Sadio Mane makes decision on Saudi Pro League transfer. Roberto mm. Firmino agrees Saudi Pro League transfer. Koulibaly, Koulibaly, all of these stories. Yeah. So my sense from what they did with Live Golf is they didn't mess around and they've managed to get themselves pretty much a seat at the table in golf very, very quickly by spending huge amounts of money, maybe two billion all told. And they signed lots of big name players. And uh, you suspect that seat at the table of golf now is going to be far more influential than golf cares to admit. So I don't know. You know, they say that the quickest way for us mere mortals to waste a ton of money is to drive our new car out of the garage. I mean, the same probably applies to buying all these big name players like Ronaldo and uh, Benzema. Initially with the Ronaldo thing, I thought, oh, well, they just want like a uh, something shiny there in the midst of the league. And yet this seems to have kickstarted something. Mm. So, I mean... I can't work out is there like a, well look it'll be opium for the masses and, and uh, my subjects will get to watch lots of big name footballers or is this a more strategic why don't we have the best league in the world well I think it's a little bit of all of that right so there is an opium bread bread and circuses element to this um, uh, dictators autocratic regimes quite like sports quite like football uh, and in a region where um I guess religion is the most important thing, probably football second most important. So, you know, having that kind of, having something, having a connection with the people is important. So yeah, that's, that's part of it. I, I, th- I think there are more positive um, reasons that Saudi Arabia is doing it. It makes sense to me for, for a few, and I'll, and I'll sort of run through them. Um, one, one, they really like football. It's, it's not, for me, contrived or forced in a yeah. way that I often felt it was in Qatar. They are football mad. They have a big population. They have a young population. Uh, football is undisputably the, the number one sport. Their national team's not bad. They beat Argentina. Um, their club sides, so I know I didn't care about what was going on in the Saudi Pro League, but I at least was aware that Saudi, the best Saudi club sides did well in the Asian Champions League and would sometimes rock up in the Club World Cup. You know, they have some good teams. And the I'm told the you know the the buzz and the banter in Riyadh and Jeddah before a big game is is good, you know there's a fan culture in Saudi Arabia, so it makes a lot more sense to sort of like we are going to be one the best in the region, 
And why not? Why couldn't our league be the best in Asia? I mean, that those those seem like attainable goals to me, mm. and not far fetched or daft. And we know that you know in the Gulf, there's sort of one upmanship and pride and all that. Yeah, that, that makes sense for me. That Saudi Arabia, having seen what Qatar, little little Qatar, achieved at the World Cup, and seen the the headway, the the head start, perhaps they'd given the UAE, would go right. We're not having that. We're we're the biggest country, the most important country in the region. We're going to have the best league. And then I think there are, you often talk to, well, I talk to Saudi people about this and they say, no, this makes sense. Um, there's a sort of public health issue here. I mentioned the big, young population. They're not particularly healthy. They have, they have bad diabetes and uh, obesity stats. So there is a public health story here. And we shouldn't be sniffy about that. You know, every Western government tells that story when they bid for an Olympics or a World Cup. It's an important part of the messaging. And then I think I go back to my point a few minutes ago. What alternative does Saudi Arabia have? They must diversify their economy. They must. They have a window, a fossil fuel window. They've got loads and loads of cash now, loads. They've got to do something. And they're going, they're going tourism, leisure, sport. It is all part of the mix. So we know about the F1 races. We know about golf, as you've mentioned. Um, WWE, the boxing, tennis next. They are going all in on sport. So when I see the Saudi Pro League, like everybody else, I'm thinking North American Soccer League. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking Packer and the and the cricket, World Series of Cricket. I'm thinking, you know, all the all the kind of where you throw money at it and you try and get some attention, the Chinese Super League, all of those. There's definite risk of that. But I do see a plan, I see a rationale. Uh they've definitely got the cash, the ambition. I think they've got, you know, some serious hurdles to get over. Um, it's not going to be for everyone. I think it was really interesting that Messi went to Miami and he talked about it being, a, you know, the, the sort of family issues being part of it, you know, kind of quality of life, what his wife and family wanted to do. I think that's going to be an issue. You know, certain players just won't fancy it. I think the quality, the overall quality of the league is really poor. I was talking to some analysts who measure these things. And prior to this wave of players going there, but after Ronaldo, they had the Saudi Pro League as about the 50th best league in the world. 50. I mean, that's, you know, and, and nowhere near the best league in Asia. Japan was the best league in Asia. Now they're talking, Ronaldo's talking about, oh, we're going to be top five. They're more. They're talking more privately, we can be top 10 in 2030-ish. Okay. We shall see, right? We shall see. Yeah. No, it all makes sense. It's a fascinating answer. You've explained all that so well. Um, so best of luck with the next question. I can't help but notice Manchester United hasn't been sold yet. Uh, we, we talked about that about six months ago. And I felt at that time there was a great sense of urgency. It's like round two of bidding this Friday, Matt. This will be wrapped up by Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I, if I gave you that impression, I apologise. No, you didn't. Um, you didn't. No. I think the sense was just hang on here. Yeah. Will the Glazers sell at all? Yeah, good. Well, look, look at me how, how clever I was uh, I, I'll be I, I'm struggling to maintain interest in this story Same. yeah uh, I know it's important my bosses keep telling me it's important so but I've got to the point now where I'm just waiting for the press release I'll be happy with that it, it, the idea that there's a sort of live story here and we have to chase every avenue you know it, it's um, it, it's, it's become a saga and it's and the clues were all there at the beginning. 
go back to the original press release. We're going to explore strategic alternatives. We may end up just doing nothing. They obviously don't put it that way, but it's all the clues are there. Um, they really wanted to whip up an auction. You know, that kind of Chelsea, four big guys going for it with a proper deadline. That didn't happen. They very quickly realised they had two and you had Qataris who all their messaging, the sensible people, not necessarily people shouting on social media, were, we're going to be disciplined. We are tired of people thinking we're just daft Arabs and we're going to throw money at this because if we throw money at this one, we'll get, you know, we've got hundreds of other deals to do in other sectors. Those days are gone. We're going to be disciplined about this. And there was quite a key message. I think it was an interview with Bloomberg or someone like that, where Sheikh Jazim's dad, who's very probably the money behind this whole caper, um, HBJ is called, former prime minister of Qatar, ludicrously wealthy guy, you know, kind of voiced his, I'm not so sure about this football stuff, but, you know, you know, kind of, my son appears to like it. But, you know, there was a bit of a clue there. You know, we're not going to get taken for mugs. And on the other side, you have Sir Jim Ratcliffe, whose entire business career is based on being the last guy standing, on spotting value, on going eyeball to eyeball with people and saying, you want how much for that? Right, you can have this much. And I will walk. I will walk. You know, and it, he has built his Ineos. It's basically about 30 different businesses where he's done this again and again and again, right. just bolting them on. Right. So it was a bit of a nightmare for the guys running the auction Oh, God, these two. Which is why we've had these ludicrous rounds of trying to get them, inching them up to this number that they promised the Glazers that they're not going to attain. And then, so that's that's the problem, if you like, on the, on one side. And then on the, the selling side, do they really want to sell all of them? You know, some of the family do, but not all of them. Do they want to sell right now? If they don't get the number they had in their mind, will they wait? Do they get bothered by protests like there was outside the, the mega store today? No. Have they ever been bothered by anything? <laughs> they live in Florida. You know, they they don't have much to do with the club. Um, so there's been no energy in this auction. There's been no sense of urgency. And everything's drifting. The club appears to be drifting a bit at the moment as well. But well, that's not unusual in a sort of summer window at United. And I, I've I've lost interest. I've lost interest in the, you know, the kind of, it's all, you know, because it was quite exciting for a while. Oh, Jim Radcliffe. Yeah, interesting guy. He's really into sport now. And um, he's got a good backstory to tell. Um, but yeah, but he's got some issues as well. Mm. And then you've got Qatar. All right, that whole, that whole debate again. And what are they going to do with PSG? And how are they going to prove separation? I'm, I'm just bored now. And, yeah. and when I talk to Man United fans, they're bored. Yeah. Um, a final uh, word or sense of the European transfer market in general. This summer, it's been a long season. There was a 70 million bid for Harry Kane on Bayern yeah. Munich's part, rejected. Jude Bellingham has gone to Bayern Munich. But uh, just casually and, and Chelsea aside, keeping an eye on the market, doesn't seem like it's particularly busy or big spending or there's an Erling Haaland type figure where we're all, where's he going to go? Or, you know, in previous years, there's a Gareth Bale type transfer, which will then trigger a whole bunch of spending elsewhere as a result. Feels like uh, calm, quiet, for whatever reason, that'd be your read? Yeah, it would. I'm not I'm not the our transfer guy. I'm not a transfer expert, but I, it was good that you reminded me. Because I was going to say, 
Has there been a transfer? Bellingham, you reminded me big Be- one. Yeah, Bellingham. yeah, yeah. That, Bellingham's but, gone through, but that's but it. it really. so, yeah, but it was so sort of like we all we kind of all, as soon as we realised that Liverpool weren't in, it, it was almost inevitable. It was real. That that's a good one, right? Well done then. But yeah, um, Kane already rejected. I mean, that's you know, Daniel Levy's not going to agree the first time, is he, on anything? Mm. Uh, I think Rice will be interesting. That that one seemed you know there's going to be a resolution there. He will go. Um, West Ham clearly have a hundred million in mind. Um, so then you, you're often right. It, it takes one, doesn't it? Because then someone has some cash to spend and it all various other deals get unblocked. But no, it hasn't happened yet for me. Mm. Uh, I've, I've, I've yet to, whilst I, I'm now really bored with the Man United saga, I've yet to get really excited about the summer transfer window. Yes. And there's no obvious reason as to why clubs might be a touch more reticent financially this summer as opposed to other summers anything obvious jumping out well well, the obvious thing is that the rest of Europe never well is still struggling to recover from Covid so I think that's that if I make a serious point yeah if you look at last summer and particularly January where uh, English clubs I think spent four times as much as the other f- big five leagues together and I think if you go summer and winter so last season they the premier league spent more than the other four together as well mm. so it's just remarkable mm. that the, the only real action is here well in england sorry um so that's an issue you know what we've been waiting for real okay real have gone big on bellingham barca want you know, traditional big spenders they're still struggling they're still looking for frees uh, you know gundawan is a great is a great acquisition yeah. but he's a free um, PSG haven't shown their hand yet, have they? So that'll, that'll be interesting. No, and they're, um, they but, seem to be grappling with what Mbappe going to do and yeah, exactly. what to do about yeah. Neymar. Do things like, do interest rates affect uh, these yeah, 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 yeah. They do. They do. Yeah, look, it's more, it's more the um, rising interest rates is, is a cost of business if, you, if you're borrowing money. So um, it's interesting that, you know, Man United, we were talking about them, you know their their net borrowings are about six hundred and fifty million now. So um, you know that's 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 a cost of business. Yeah. Um, and we know that Man United, they talk about is this takeover impacting on their business, and it's not really. What's impacting on their business is their FFP um, calculation. They've got about a hundred million to spend. So the Qataris could come in tomorrow, and it's not really going to change that. A mm. uh, hundred million plus whatever they make on player trading, which at Man United is almost always not very much because they're rubbish at selling players. But um, yeah, look, the rest of Europe has has kind of stopped spending. And if it's not Real and it's not Barca anymore, mm. and PSG haven't done anything yet, and Bayern are always a bit cautious. Maybe they will get Kane. That'd be good. That will, you know kickstart something here um the italian clubs haven't been spending money for a, for a two or three seasons now the, the the action is is sort of driven by the premier league um and we just haven't quite seen that one deal yet that unlocks the other deal so okay. that that's the story yeah very good well as ever matt slater and the athletic is very much recommended reading from our vantage point matt pleasure to have you on thank you lovely talking to you